You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. In 1924, a young senator, a Republican from North Dakota, approached his older colleague. He was confused. Why were all the senators, the Republicans, eating together? And yet, in the corner, at a table alone, was the Republican vice president, Calvin Coolidge. Is that a way to treat your presiding officer, the senator asked. Eat with someone else more influential, they told him. Nobody's anything to do with him. After all, he is through as far as this body is concerned. It was a problem that there were so many better names. Charles Dawes, Charles Curtis of Kansas, Hiram Johnson of of California. Why keep Cal? Plus Cal, the austere Massachusetts governor and local guy turned vice president, didn't appeal to the Senate. He didn't do much. Harding was such an insider. Coolidge? He was just there banging a gavel. He went to a lot of the dinners. Too many dinners, he felt. He didn't relish them. He claimed to his father about that. Too many talking people. He said so little at these dinners. The senators and cabinet members noted. And one even asked him, why'd he go to the dinners if he wasn't going to say anything? Got to eat somewhere, came the fast reply. And that's the way Coolidge was. He was something of a gimmick VP, actually. His big event was putting down a police strike in Boston, which during the Red Scare of 1919 made him a law and order guy and created buzz at the 1920 convention. Had it been 1918, had it been 1921 or 1922, There's no way the delegates at the Republican convention would have picked this obscure Massachusetts politician. But because of that news story and the focus on law and order, he got the nod.
Imagine it's 1919. And you are a Boston policeman. You were paid about 15 to 20K in today's dollars. You may work for that as many as 12 hours. You might even work six days a week and work in a dilapidated station house. You might be sleeping there many nights in very cramped condition, two to a bed. To deal with grievances, you seek to collectively bargain the way so many other workers would in 1919, the way your firemen counterparts did, and the way New York City policemen did through their benevolent association, which suggested wage increases, though it did not strike. You have a social club of Boston police officers. skilled workers, you wish to join Samuel Gompers, American Federation of Labor. The commissioner in Boston says he won't deal with a collective group, a union, but he offers a small, maybe in today's dollars, $500 to $1,000 increase, and he bans any union activity. What do you do? You don't just want that $500 to $1,000 increase, you want a little more. This is what happened in Boston in 1919, and it led to the original position of public sector unions. It also made the career of future President Calvin Coolidge, who was then governor of Massachusetts, only two years on the job. The mayor appoints a committee, and he tries to work out a deal between the commissioner and these striking workers. The committee says, look, let them keep this social club that the Boston police have or form an independent union, but we agree with the commissioner they can't join a national union like the AFL. No good, says the commissioner. He won't even accept that compromise. He wants them in no union, even an independent union, and he won't bargain with them collectively. The commissioner is visiting with Governor Coolidge, and this is one of the reasons he's fortified in his position. He knows the governor supports him. The police strike. 1,100 of the 1,500-member Boston police force, about 70% or so of the Boston police force, walk off the job. Commissioner Curtis, acting with a bit of bluster, had assured Governor Coolidge and the mayor, Boston Mayor Peters, that everything would be fine. He's going to have a volunteer militia patrol the streets. But there's a problem. There was no militia when the time came. There was looting in the shopping areas, hooligans rolling around the streets, tramps all over the place, broken windows, stories of women being accosted and stores being looted. The volunteer police force had not yet assembled. It would take a couple of days. Peters, the mayor, tried to get Governor Coolidge to call the guard in. Coolidge waited. See, Peters was a Democrat, Coolidge a Republican. Peters knew that if Governor Coolidge called in the guard with these striking workers, it's possible it would probably hurt him for re-election of his seat, something that Peters was interested in the governorship. So everyone, they were kind of doing a little dance here. On the second day, Peters was forced to ask for the guard. He had to ask Governor Coolidge for the guard, so it was him that that asked. But he made a point of issuing a statement saying, I got no help from Governor Coolidge. The guard, for the most part, 
restored order in Boston. It was a big national news story. President Wilson condemned the striking police officers, calling them the enemy of civilization for striking, walking off the job. Coolidge was incensed by the statement that Mayor Peters released, as he called for the National Guard, and authorized Commissioner Curtis to act at his, Coolidge's, instructions. He also called the policemen in Boston who were striking deserters. The union responded with a statement saying that many of the members had just fought in France. This was World War I, uh, or against Spain in 1898, and asked Governor Coolidge, what war had he fought in? You know, that's an accusation that you see many, many times in history, of course. When Gompers, the head of the AFL, sent a telegram to Governor Coolidge asking him to please settle the strike, he responded, and his response became famous. He said to Gompers, there can be no strike against the public safety at any time. Boston replaced the striking policemen with new officers in the easy labor market with all the veterans returning from World War I. And those men who walked out would never be Boston police officers again. He also broke a political lag logjam between General Leonard Wood, a TR fighting man who was going to get some of the progressive votes, and Frank Loudon, a conservative and rich Kansas governor also connected to the powerful Pullman Railroad Car family. They kept battling it out. Harding wins the nomination. That was a surprise, a result of a backroom deal, angering delegates. And delegates, a group of them, decide that, hey, you kind of snookered us on the choice for the presidential nomination, and we're not going with the establishment party choices here, not Lawden and not Wood. We'll go for Coolidge. It was the first time that the country wished a vice president on the party, one newspaper journalist wrote. Here's what um, Theodore Roosevelt's son, who was in the cabinet at the time of Harding's administration, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Assistant Secretary of the Navy, wrote about Coolidge. Though I sit more than two months in cabinet with him, I do not know his politics. I have never heard him express his opinion on any major question. Coolidge traveled, he did the role of the vice president, the ceremony, gave blah speeches on the power of moral law, or the needs of education, or Andrew Carnegie, a model to all, as scandal began in the Harding administration that the Interior Secretary had leased illegally lands containing oil badly needed for Navy ships to a business magnate who just basically stole the oil. Coolidge stayed quiet. He didn't have anything to do with that. On August 1st, 1923, Coolidge was vacationing in Plymouth Notch, where his father lived in Vermont. Newspapers came along and took the usual pictures of the vice president vacationing, wearing a woolen frock, chopping wood, and raking leaves. That night in San Francisco, the president after having an arduous voyage by sea and a not-so-great trip to Alaska, developed a fever. was hoarse, pale, he recovered somewhat, and the fever came back. He died at 7.32 p.m. in his hotel room in San Francisco. A Harding secretary telegraphed Washington, 
That took several hours. Then in Washington, they were thinking what to do. There was no telegraph that could reach this little town, Plymouth Notch. Only a telephone at a general store. So they telegraphed the nearby town of Bridgewater. And the telegrapher there then tried to phone the store. No one answers at the general store. The owner was sleeping. The telegrapher at Bridgewater then gets into a car and, along with a reporter, goes to the town of Plymouth Notch eight miles away. So did other reporters. They go to Calvin Coolidge's father's house, and he is roused and answers in his sleeping clothes with a kerosene lamp. Who is out there? (laughs) They tell him, and he calls up to Calvin on the second floor. It was the only time, Coolidge would recall, that his father's voice ever trembled. Coolidge gets the news, kneels down to pray, and then dictates to a stenographer who would arrive from Bridgewater a note of sympathy for Mrs. Harding. The Attorney General's telegraph told him to take the oath immediately. He goes to the general store and calls Secretary of State Charles Hughes and says, how can I swear and who is allowed to do this? Anyone who is a notary, Hughes replies. His father was. And so at 2.47 a.m. in a dark room, in zero-degree weather, mountain roads, John Coolidge swore in his son as President of the United States. It wasn't a log cabin, but there was nothing in the house, no electricity, no lights, lack of plumbing. There was nothing in that house that would have surprised Abraham Lincoln, say. What did they do after that? After taking the oath, Calvin Coolidge and John Coolidge, Mrs. Coolidge, went back to sleep. Up again at 6 a.m., they headed for Washington. But before, he asked the car to stop to visit his mother's grave. All of these events were natural, but were recorded by newspaper men. As the months would come, as a new president would take office and make decisions, run into trouble at times, have a Congress that didn't start liking him that much, as scandals would be revealed more from the previous president and administration, and indictments move forward, this story of Plymouth Notch would be a powerful weapon in Coolidge's arsenal. All of this press coverage, Coolidge would remain relatively untouched. Florence Harding was invited to remain at the White House as long as she desired, so Coolidge took residence in the Willard Hotel, and he set up his office in the lobby of that hotel. And there was the unofficial White House. He issued a proclamation of national mourning. He quietly takes the oath again, this time with a federal judge, just in case there were any questions. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
and the press and public would learn about Silent Cal and this sampler, this book that was in his living room. A wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't we be like that old bird? You know, this reminds me uh, of a place that I visited in Baltimore, uh, an old speakeasy where they have this on the wall. Um, but Coolidge's quiet White House, you know, there's one secretary, not a fleet of aides. He had no telephone. He couldn't drive. A newspaper said he tells no jokes, seldoms laughs. Yet he was the best vote getter in Massachusetts. Alice Roosevelt Longworth said he looked as though he looked as though he was weaned on a pickle. William Allen White said, I noticed Coolidge never grinned when he made a joke. That made some people think that his remarks were dumb, but he was not, whatever else may be said of him. Will Rogers said he had more subtle humor than almost any public man. An example, uh, he was, an example was when he was meeting with a bunch of politicians and he poured coffee into his saucer, knowing what they would probably do. The other politicians joined him and wanting to show respect for the president poured coffee into their saucers, too, waiting for the president to slurp it before they did. Then Coolidge kneeled and left his saucer for the dog. He was not a man of many words, but he knew of images. He, he would entertain visitors for hours at a time. He would hold press conferences. He told the press, this is your government. You could be very helpful to the administration and in the administration of this government. You shall have the information your reader desires to hear. He held 520 press conferences. So think about that when you hear the nickname Silent Kill. He worked hard. He consulted with Congress. He delayed a lot. Um, as he told one writer, a president shouldn't do too much or know too much. He delegated a lot. And as he told a writer, a president shouldn't do too much or know too much. The president can't resign. Well, this was before Nixon. If a member of the cabinet makes a mistake, the president can ask him to get out. So I tell my cabinet, there are many things you must not tell me. If you draw me into your department and something goes wrong, I must stay here. And by involving me, you have lowered the faith of the people in your government. There's a lot to quibble with, of course, in that. <laughs> um, he, for instance, wanted to project stubbornness to resist government as a force of remedies for e economic legislation. It wouldn't take long for this kind of neutral, beloved figure who had taken over after the death of the president and was quiet and sincere to draw into some politics in his own party. Coolidge had to deal with primary possibilities, none as strong as his, the former Teddy Roosevelt friend, progressive and governor of Pennsylvania, Gifford Pinchot. Pinchot, as Time Magazine said, he must have an issue. And with Mr. Coolidge's silence on issues, he's having trouble finding one. But Pinchot found the issue that silence could be deadly in. And 
that Coolidge wasn't for prohibition enough. Pinchot, Pinchot would be for prohibition strongly. He would convince people he was the very angel of drought, as a newspaper said. Coolidge, he said, failed to take direct control of enforcement of prohibition, and that's why it was failing. The government should be stronger in controlling the importation of liquor. The present orgy of unlawlessness is unnecessary. Subtle or not, Pinchot was critical of Coolidge. Coolidge would enforce, he said, to the letter of the law. Pinchot would be a crusader. Coolidge said, for instance, that the Volstead Act called for the Commissioner of Revenue, not the President, to enforce the law. And states, he felt, had to implement policies as well. Coolidge issued a State of the Union outlining his policy. This issue wasn't enough to get distance on Coolidge. Uh, Coolidge lost the North Dakota primary, but won the primary in California with the help of Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover. Pinchot faded as a candidate and ended up not running at all. I think there's one last story to tell about Coolidge as uh, president. Coolidge is staying in the Willard Hotel. Well, this is not today's security and secret service and all that. Um, and Coolidge awakes one day to find a figure of the, a male man who had climbed through the window, sorting through his clothes. The guy finds his wallet, his watch. Now, many people might freak out, scream for some security or something like this. What Coolidge says is, I wish you wouldn't take that. And as he's doing so, the burglar reading the encryption, and he says, are you President Coolidge? Yes. That's money. Let's talk it over. He handed the burglar $32. The burglar went away. It was later repaid. And that's that. That's a president you don't hear much uh, about so much. Uh, Coolidge, um, there are two things you have to get into with Coolidge. Maybe three, maybe four, okay? <laughs> the 1920s was a time of growth, uh, unfortunately, of the Ku Klux Klan, not only in the south, but in the north of the country, all over the country, really. And Coolidge, that was an issue where quiet Coolidge, silent Cal could be rightly criticized. It's not certainly that he promoted the Klan in any sense of the form, but very telling is that in the party's platform, they were unable to get a resolution in 1924 uh, calling out the Klan. Coolidge also suffers a tragedy right as the his reelection is unfolding, and that is that his son dies. It's sudden. It's unexpected. Uh, the nation is, is horrified. Everyone stops campaigning. It happens right in the middle of the Democratic convention, which is taking forever. They called, you know, the convention a, a moment of silence, a moment of prayer for son. It's announced on the radio. Um, there's some talk that Coolidge might have been a case just like Wilson for the 25th Amendment, if something existed like that, which it did not at that time, because he was so depressed and morbid about this event, as anybody can understand, that perhaps he wasn't functioning as president during that time. Of course, it's not the nuclear era. It is the era of, of battleships and certain threats, but uh, not not anything great for the United States at that time. I'd also talk about Coolidge as the first true radio president. His very, you know, they keep saying Silent Cal, and it's misleading that his voice just connected well on the on the radio. Also, the radio is an amplification device, as it at its most basic, right? In in other words, listen, in fact, to a president that comes after him, 
Franklin Roosevelt and the way Franklin Roosevelt talks, you know, we have nothing to fear, but he's used to speaking to crowds. He's used to almost speaking like a vaudeville type performer, right? That's how you, a trained politician, anyone who had experience in the politics of the 19th century and the early 20th is going to speak. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's a guy that shook hands with Grover Cleveland, you know, in a meeting with his, with his father. So, um, he's connected. He knows what it's like to be a politician. Coolidge is not. He's a local politician who ascends to the governor. And because he happens to be governor when the Boston police strike happens, he's elevated to national office. This all happens quickly. You know, he was a pretty good local politician. It's not something he trained for. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Because of that, he just speaks into the microphone. These results are not fanciful. They're not imaginary. They are grimly actual and real, reaching into every household in the land. They take from each home annually an average of over $300, and taxes must be paid. They are not a voluntary contribution to be met out of surplus earnings. They are a stern necessity. And because radio is an amplification device, you know, hearing that person, you don't need to put the style on, really. They come first. It is only out of what is left after they are paid that the necessities of food, clothing, and shelter can be provided and the comforts of home secured are the yearnings of the soul. And it goes over pretty well. And Coolidge is actually a pretty successful president with the media. Of course, it's also a time where people want to get on with their business and make money and things like that. And a president who's kind of just lending a little quiet moral authority and not, you know, crusading is, is something they're looking for. So all of it works. Uh, we met, we referenced Coolidge on prohibition. So silent Cal in a silent Cal in a way, you know, maybe responsible for the way that prohibition was enforced in a moderate way at the federal level, even though despite what you see in movies where they're constantly breaking into bars and a very small percentage of enforcement really happened for what was going on. And 
That was because the president at the helm was somebody who had in the legislature in Massachusetts, his district had distilleries. Um, he wasn't necessarily against prohibition, but was against a kind of draconian enforcement of it, or at least his actions that we don't have the words to say. His actions show that. So that's an important thing to understand about Coolidge and maybe for some that don't have anything positive to say if they're not fans of prohibition and, and the results of it. Uh, you see in there a person that kind of close to looking the other way, at least what some in his party, including a primary challenger, wanted to do. And finally, Calvin Coolidge's role in the stock crisis is roundly criticized, and, you know, he dies defending his record because for many, Cal in an era of speculation in stocks was not a good thing, and perhaps a president that would be more inclined to say, be careful about overinvestment, particularly overborrowing, and might have contradicted his Treasury Secretary, you know, may have been helpful, but he doesn't. And the Treasury Secretary, even when the New York Fed says, be careful about buying on credit, Treasury Secretary Mellon continues to say there's nothing wrong with the stock market. And Calvin Coolidge um, doesn't do anything dramatic to warn people or to, to put the brakes, so to speak. In fact, probably the opposite. There you go. That's Coolidge. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.